0: And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. Three, two, one. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trap Cast. You've gotta be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. Congratulations! You have made the right decision. You tuned in to Tratcast and you will not regret it. This is episode number three. Tratcast is the traditional Catholic podcast on the internet, brought to you by Novus Ordo Watch at novusordowatch.org. Thanks for tuning in. As we had promised in the last episode of Tradcast, today, in this third episode, we're going to respond to a rebuttal to one of our posts that has been offered by Mr. Eric Gajewski, the webmaster of the Tradcat Night blog. And uh, his rebuttal was posted in October of 2014. Now, before we get into that, I've got to give you a little bit of background here. In, uh, let's see, this was uh, in April of 2014, April 6th, 2014, we posted on the Novels Orto Wire blog a post entitled Pope Leo XIII Quashes Popular, Recognize, and Resist Position. And let me read to you briefly the introductory paragraphs so you know what it is about. Just as the various semi-traditionalists recognize and resist camps are revving up their energies to collectively oppose the impending canonization of the apostate bishop Karol Wojtyła, otherwise known by his pseudonym Pope John Paul II, Ordo Watch has bent over backwards to unearth and present two little-known papal documents by Pope Leo XIII that absolutely demolish their comfortable position of having your pope and beating him too. The two documents represent are two apostolic letters written by his holiness in the 1880s, one addressed to the Cardinal Archbishop of Paris, the other to the Archbishop of Tours. As far as we know, they have never before been translated into English in their entirety, and except for a few select quotes are not available on the internet in English at all. Until now that is. We are pleased to present to you, first time ever, full English translations of the following two papal documents. And then follow the names of the two documents, and they are Epistola Tua, the Apostolic Letter of Pope Leo Thirteenth to Cardinal Guibert um, on June 17, 1885. And the other document is the Apostolic Letter Est Sane Molestum of... December 17th, 1888, and that is probably the 13th to Archbishop Mignon. Now, we're not, of course, going to go through the content of these uh, two documents. You are able to read them in their entirety for yourself, if you like. We're putting the links to these two letters on our Tradcast homepage for this episode, so you can uh, find them there and click on them. But we will have um, a few highlights, shall we say, of the juicy parts that clearly demolish the oh-so-popular position nowadays, advanced especially by the Society of St. Pius X, but also other similar traditionalists that uh, pretty much holds that a pope can do and teach as he pleases and the faithful simply have to resist that which is bad and oppose that and in fact in many cases cannot assent to the teaching under pain of mortal sin even under pain of heresy sometimes so that following the pope in that case would actually become a cause of damnation okay now this absurd position is completely contradicted by pope leo the 13th and here's what he says the first three quotes i'm going to give you are from the Apostolic letter Epistola Tua. Publio says, quote, to the shepherds alone was given all power to teach, to judge, to direct. On the faithful was imposed the duty of following their teaching, of submitting with docility to their judgment, and of allowing themselves to be governed, corrected, and guided by them in the way of salvation. Thus it is an absolute necessity for the simple faithful to submit in mind and heart to their own pastors, and for the latter to submit with them to the head and supreme pastor. Unquote. The second quote is as follows, quote, It is to give proof of a submission which is far from sincere to set up some kind of opposition between one pontiff and another. Those who, faced with two differing directives, reject the present one to hold to the past, are not giving proof of obedience to the authority which has the right and duty to guide them, and in some ways they resemble those who, on receiving a condemnation, would wish to appeal to a future council or to a pope who is better informed unquote. And the third paragraph I'd like to quote, quote, that obligation, if it is generally incumbent on all, is, you may indeed say, especially pressing upon journalists. The task pertaining to them is this, to be subject completely in mind and will, just as all the other faithful are, to their own bishops and and to the Roman pontiff to follow and make known their teachings to be fully and willingly subservient to their influence and to reverence their precepts and assure that they are respected unquote this is pope leo the 13th speaking in his apostolic letter epistola tua now if if you've been listening closely especially that that last paragraph does this at all sound to you like Catholic Family News or The Remnant or The Angelus or similar publications? Not so much, does it? There are two more paragraphs I'd like to quote from the other document that we have been uh, promoting by Pope Leo XIII, which is very little known. It is the document, the apostolic letter, *Est Sane Molestum*. Quote, no, it cannot be permitted that laymen who profess to be Catholic should go so far as openly to arrogate to themselves, in the columns of a newspaper, the right to denounce and to find fault, with the greatest license and according to their own good pleasure, with every sort of person, not excepting bishops, and think that, with the single exception of matters of faith, they are allowed to entertain any opinion which may please. Them and exercise the right to judge everyone after their own fashion. And the second paragraph from that document To scrutinize the actions of a bishop, to criticize them, does not belong to individual Catholics but concerns only those who, in the sacred hierarchy, have a superior power. Above all, it concerns the supreme pontiff. Now, notice if these things are true with regard to laymen criticizing bishops, how much more so would they be true with regard to laymen criticizing and disagreeing with the teachings of a pope? So, if there was some recognize and resist teaching that the neo and whom we call semi-traditionalists as they would have us believe, obviously Pope Leo 13th didn't know anything about it, did he? So, just to give you a little bit of background, there's a lot more in those documents that, than what I've just quoted here, but those are some of the really hard-hitting, juicy, meaty parts that should make it clear that the recognize and resist position of the Society of St. Pius X and any other of those kinds of traditionalists, people who call themselves traditional Catholics, that this position is completely foreign to the teaching of the church. As we said, Mr. Eric Gajewski, the editor of the Trat Cat Night blog, posted a response to this in which he tries to make the case that not only Did Pope Leo XIII not condemn the recognize and resist position, but he actually endorsed it? Tratcast. So let's have a look at Mr. Gajewski's rebuttal. He begins by saying, This blog comes as a refutation to the very impotent argument of Novus Ordo Watch that Leo XIII was implying we be against the recognize and resist position in this crisis of the church. For reference, I contacted Novelsorter Watch many months back, and after about the third email, they ran away from phone conversation. Now, does the man really think that we're going to spend time writing email after email after email, and then engage in phone conversation on a topic that we can tell he's not going to budge on anyway? Sorry, not going to happen. This. Novoz of Watch is a volunteer effort. We have limited time and resources, and we intend to spend that wisely. Okay, so um, there are plenty of people who would like to engage us in discussion and debate and so forth. Folks, it's not going to happen, especially not... On a long-term basis, and especially not with only one party, okay? Where the greatest effect we could have is change the mind of one single party, okay? So let's just clarify this right at the outset, all right? Trapcast. Now, we're not going to go through this rebuttal paragraph by paragraph that would be a very cumbersome way of doing it but you can certainly read the rebuttal first we have a link posted at tradcast.org so you can see it for yourself what we'll do instead is just summarize his arguments and take a look at the quotes he provides and then give a response and honestly, in terms of the actual arguments, there is not a whole lot there. It is simply the same objection over and over again, and that is that submission to a pope is not contradicted by resisting his unlawful commands or rejecting his false teachings, right? That is, that is essentially the main thesis that Mr. Gajewski asserts, and to which we're going to respond. He also argues that we do not understand what the difference is between recognizing a pope and resisting him, and he also claims that popes can very much defect from the faith and teach heresy in their decrees. Okay, those are the main arguments. Tradcast. Now, as regards the quotes that our critic brings up to justify his position, he begins with an alleged quote from Pope Pius IX in a supposed letter to Bishop Bryson. And the quote is this, If a future pope teaches anything contrary to the Catholic faith, do not follow him. That is supposedly what Pope Pius the ninth wrote to this mysterious Bishop Bryson. and Mr. Kaczuski concludes triumphantly: "So much for recognize and resist being heretical, as Novus Ordo Watch so comically teaches." Now let's see who the comedian is here, because if you do a little bit of research, you will find out that there was no Bishop Bryzen in the Catholic Church and. Uh, also, especially not during the reign of Pope Pius IX. I mean, these are the kinds of things you can actually look up, okay? There is an objective record of who has been made a bishop in the Catholic Church, and you can go look it up. And that's what we encourage you to do. Look it up. There is no, and there has been no, Bishop Bryson. All right? You can, in fact, you can do this on the internet. You can go to the Catholic Hierarchy website. It's catholic Hierarchy. Dot org, catholic-hierarchy.org and you will look for a Bishop Bryson in vain. What reference, what citation, what source does our critic give for this alleged quote of Pope Pius IX to Bishop Bryson? Well, none, of course. You see, he simply picked it up somewhere from a website on the internet and decided to paste it because it fit the agenda, right? It is, I mean, this quote is just too perfect for the resistance position, right? If a future pope teaches anything contrary to the Catholic faith, do not follow him. Perfect. This is just, like, custom-ordered, if you think about it. So, uh, so what we have here is a spurious quote attributed to a pope to a bishop who never existed with no citation information. I'm sorry, but if this is supposed to be the great refutation of our position, I really don't want to know what the rest of the argumentation looks like. All right. So much for that very first quote. Then our critic brings up a quote from Cardinal Torquemada. And before we get into an actual response to it, Let me just point out that it is really curious what we're being asked to do here. We're being asked to accept the theological position of one cardinal in the 15th century, in this case Cardinal Torquemada, when at the same time we're being asked to reject or at least ignore an entire ecumenical council and the entire post-conciliar teaching office, right, of the Vatican II supposed popes. Does this make any sense to you? I mean, why should I care what one cardinal in the 15th century said, who's, who's by the way, is not a saint, it's not a doctor of the church, okay, was just a cardinal. Why should I care about what this cardinal's position was regarding whether a pope can be resisted or not, If at the same time I'm being asked to junk all of Vatican II, essentially, and the entire magisterium that followed Vatican II, if I can do all this, why should I have to accept Cardinal Torquemada? Why should I have to accept what he teaches on this point? Because obviously, a true pope has a lot greater teaching authority than a single cardinal, and even more so when the Pope in question is teaching in the present day, and the Cardinal's position was enunciated 500 years ago. So I'm being asked to accept one Cardinal's word from 500 years ago over essentially the entire papal magisterium, supposedly, since roughly 1960. It just makes no sense. Our critic then brings up Pope Innocent III with a quote about a pope withering away into heresy, and we'll address that in a moment. Oh, and then Mr. Gajewski brings up the very Pope Leo Thirteenth with the very quote that we used, and he tries to use it against us. Here is the quote again from Pope Leo Thirteenth, apostolic letter est sane molestum, quote, No, it cannot be permitted that laymen who profess to be Catholic should go so far as openly to arrogate to themselves in the columns of a newspaper the right to denounce and to find fault, with the greatest license and according to their own good pleasure, with every sort of person not excepting bishops, and think that with the single exception of matters of faith— they are allowed to entertain any opinion which may please them, and exercise the right to judge everyone after their own fashion. Unquote. Now Mr Gajewski somehow believes that this quote, this paragraph somehow proves his position, because Pope Lee the thirteenth says, with the exception of matters of faith. But here our critic has not carefully read, or at least not understood, the paragraph in question see, Pope Leo's exception for matters of faith does not refer to what journalists and other laymen are permitted to judge bishops on, but rather it refers to what these newspaper columnists are doing. They are judging bishops and other clergy on anything that does not pertain to faith, thinking themselves permitted to do so precisely because it doesn't involve matters of faith. And Pope Leo is saying, no, you cannot do that either. See, just because you're critiquing a bishop on something that isn't a matter of faith, for example, how he runs his diocese or what car he drives, doesn't mean that you can just criticize him as you please. That is what Pope Leo XIII is saying, and is actually quite clear when you pay close attention. Let's uh, look at the quote one more time. Quote, no, it cannot be permitted that laymen who profess to be Catholic should go so far as openly to arrogate to themselves in the columns of a newspaper the right to denounce and to find fault with the greatest license and, according to their own good pleasure, with every sort of person not excepting bishops, and think that with the single exception of matters of faith, they are allowed to entertain any opinion which may please them and exercise the right to judge everyone after their own fashion. So, this too is not quite the triumphant refutation of our position either, as Mr. Gajewski obviously thought it would be. Our critic then brings up a few more quotes from various theologians of the 16th and 17th centuries and then ends his rebuttal with a quote from Vatican I. Now, in a moment, we're going to address those objections in in greater depth, but notice what he did not do, and this is very curious. He did not simply go to a 20th century pre-Vatican II dogmatic manual or catechism or, or other theology book and just quote that. Why didn't he do that? You would think that if this teaching that he's putting forth this recognize and resist position, if that is so clear and so obvious and that it's what Pope Leo taught and Pius IX and St. Pius X and if they all had agreed with it, well, how come that teaching cannot be found anywhere? I have yet to encounter a theological work since Vatican I that talks about papal authority, papal infallibility, the magisterium and so forth, that mentions this recognize and resist position, or at least the principles inherent in it. In the case of Eric Gajuski, you can see he has to go to the 16th century, way before the First Vatican Council, to dig up theologians that supposedly, so he thinks, prove his point. Well, isn't that interesting? You know, back in those days, there were... A number of things that were still being disputed and you could legitimately take a position that has since then been clarified and is no longer permitted in the church. So, whenever you see people quote theologians from hundreds of years ago and none from the present day or, you know, at least 20th century before Vatican II, ask yourself, why is that? Well, it's very simple because they probably couldn't find any. Or in, in, in Mr. Gajewski's case, I'll suppose that he probably just pulled it off of some SSPX propaganda tract, okay, or from some blog somewhere and probably never actually tried to research these things uh, on his own. But be that as it may, uh, let's start responding uh, in, in greater detail to the, first of all, to the main argument being made, and that is the argument that... You can still submit to a pope even if you resist his teachings when those teachings are false. Okay, that somehow this, this resistance does not negate your submission to the pope, that you're still actually subject to him. But this is not at all Catholic teaching. You see, it's really not all that difficult to look the stuff up. For example, Monsignor Gerard van Noort wrote a series of books called Dogmatic Theology, and Volume 2 is on the church and the papacy. Volume 2 is called Christ's Church, and it is available in English. And it was published by the Newman Press in 1957. And I've got this book in front of me here, and I'm opening it up to page 280. He talks here about the power of the supreme pontiff. And he says, The power enjoyed by the supreme pontiff is a real jurisdiction. Okay, and then he goes on to explain it. Quote, It is a real binding authority which demands as its correlative effect a duty not simply of reverence but of obedience in the strict sense of the term. The primacy, then, is worlds apart from any mere function of a presiding officer over his associates or confreres. Such an officer is merely an equal among equals and has primacy over the others, only insofar as he directs the order to be followed in debating, voting, etc. Neither is the primacy of the Pope simply an office of direction, for the notion of direction connotes counsel and persuasion rather than the exercise of genuine authority. And we'll have the exact citation uh, to this Work and uh, perhaps also a link to where you can uh, purchase this book on the Tratcast homepage for this episode, episode number 003. So Van Noort is pointing out that the Pope has real authority. He's not simply a glorified president who is just parroting, repeating. Uh, what has already been said before. Rather, he has a real teaching office and exercises real teaching authority, and he can bind the consciences of the faithful with this teaching. In other words, you must assent to the teaching. We all must assent to the teaching because. It comes from a legitimate pope. The teaching is not subject to review by the Society of St. Pius X or some journalist in Minnesota or some blogger somewhere. That's not how it works in the Catholic Church. That's actually what the Protestants believe, right? They have their Pastor Chuck, and they all come to the service on Sundays with their Bibles in hand, and they want to make sure that pastor chuck doesn't lead them astray, right? cuz what if what if he teaches the wrong thing, right? You got to have your bible there and make sure that he doesn't mislead you. So, <laughs> who's teaching whom here? Who is the final authority here? All right? So, if you look it up, you find out that the jurisdiction that the pope possesses in virtue of his office is a genuine jurisdiction. It is genuine authority with which he can bind the consciences of the faithful. It is not simply a primacy of honor or of direction or some sort of a glorified presidency. This is what very much distinguishes Catholics from Protestants. Monsignor van Noort goes on to explain the the power and jurisdiction of the Supreme Pontiff at great length, and uh, we're not going to go through all that, uh, but certainly there's a few more things that I'd like to point out. For example, uh, on the same page, page 280, van Noort says, "...the jurisdiction of the Supreme Pontiff is universal." It is universal both in regard to place and to the business involved. It is universal in regard to place because it extends to all the churches spread throughout the entire world in regard to the business involved because it extends not only to matters of faith and morals, which is the ecclesiastical magisterium, but also to the discipline and government of the entire church. Finally, it is universal in regard to persons because no Christian is exempt from it. So that would include Bishop Fillet in Menzingen. It would include bloggers everywhere. It would include Mr. Gajewski, It would include also John Veneri, for example, who is on record saying that he would not allow the Pope to teach religion to his children. Okay, he's talking about Francis there, whom he believes to be the Pope of the Catholic Church. Sadly. This is crazy. The fact of the matter is simply that you cannot reconcile the teaching of the church on the papacy with the ideas of the recognize and resist camp. Okay, Those who recognize Francis as Pope, but then resist virtually everything that he does, teaches, legislates, okay? including the uh, canonization of his supposed saints. Right? like John Paul II and uh, John Twenty Third, and uh, I'm s- sure it'll soon be Oscar Romero and uh, Paul Sixth. Now, let no one say that what we just gave you here from Monsignor van Noort, that that was just, oh, this one theologian's private opinion. No, that's definitely not the case. Monsignor van Noort was simply stating the common and quite clear teaching of the church regarding the authority of the pope and the papal magisterium. But let's also use some other sources. We don't just have to rely on van Noort here, and that's why I always say you can look the stuff up for yourself, okay? these A lot of these things are available in, in the vernacular, all right? You don't have to know Latin uh, necessarily. Sure, for some of maybe the really detailed stuff, uh, that may be necessary, but just to get a good understanding of the faith. No, you can certainly find those books in English. It is not that difficult. Here, I'm using the book Manual of Dogmatic Theology by Adolphe Tanqueray. All right, this is volume one. It is a two-volume set, and it was published in 1959, so right after the death of Pope Pius XII. So, in other words, what you're going to find in here is informed by the full teaching all the way up to the last moments of the pontificate of Pope Pius XII. Here's what Tanqueray says on the pontifical power. This is Volume 1, Manual of Dogmatic Theology, page 149. Tanqueray says, quote, in a threefold manner, the Roman pontiff fulfills the right and the duty to spread the doctrine of Christ among all people and to preserve this doctrine pure and entire. One, by solemn definitions, these definitions are irreformable and demand the full agreement that the mind gives to Catholic faith. We should realize that the Vatican Council, and here, he, of course, he means the first Vatican Council, has stated that pontifical infallibility is just as manifest as as is the infallibility of the church. 2. By a merely ecclesiastical magisterium. By setting forth truths without the intention of defining them, for example, by approving of catechisms and other books for the instruction of the faithful, by answering various questions through decretal letters, etc. 3. By the Roman congregations. The Holy See exercises its magisterium through certain congregations, in particular through the Holy Office. The decrees of the congregations have more or less value and power according as they are approved by the Holy Pontiff. A. In solemn manner, thence they become acts of the Holy Pontiff and may become infallible. However, most decrees of this kind are not infallible because very often the intention of defining the matter in question is lacking or one of the necessary conditions is lacking. B. Or, in common, ordinary manner, then the decrees remain acts of the congregation and cannot be infallible. And now, here here comes the best part. The assent, which is due to infallible decrees, is at least of ecclesiastical faith, because it has as its formal motive the authority of the infallible magisterium. In regard to decrees that are not infallible, an internal and religious assent is demanded, which, although not absolutely certain, is prudential and morally certain. Both obedience and prudence demands this agreement. And that was Father Adolphe Tanqueray, Volume 1 of the Manual of Dogmatic Theology, pages 149 and 150. Tanqueray then discusses the Pope's power to rule, and he says, quote, The Roman pontiff has the full and supreme power of jurisdiction throughout the Universal Church, even in disciplinary manners, and in truth, a power that is also ordinary and immediate. This thesis is de fide from the First Vatican Council. If anyone shall say that the Roman pontiff has the office merely of inspection or direction— but not full and supreme power of jurisdiction over the universal church, not only in things which belong to faith and morals, but also in those which relate to the discipline and government of the church spread throughout the world, or assert that he possesses merely the principal parts and not all the fullness of the supreme power, or that this power which he enjoys is not ordinary and immediate both over each and all the churches, And over each and all the pastors and the faithful, let him be anathema. So, this is pretty clear and forceful teaching. And a quote by Cardinal Torquemada from the 1400s just isn't going to cut it here, okay, to oppose this. And so, one really has to ask oneself... Do the people who profess to recognize Francis and John Paul II and Benedict XVI and all the other modernist supposed popes who recognize them as true popes, do they truly concede to them this power of jurisdiction? Do they follow their teaching? Do they grant internal and religious assent to what they have taught? And of course, the answer is no. Let's go ahead and look at one more source on this. It is the popular book, The Catechism Explained, an Exhaustive Exposition of the Catholic Religion. And uh, it was written by Father Francis Spirago and edited by Father Richard Clark. And the edition I have in front of me here is the one that was published a few years ago by Ten Books. And it has the imprimatur of Cardinal Hayes, dated October 18th, 1921. On page 225 of this edition, we read the following regarding the authority of the Pope. Quote, He has the highest power in the church as teacher of all Christians and chief shepherd of the shepherds and their flocks. He has the most complete jurisdiction in deciding questions of faith and morals and in arranging the discipline of the universal church. This power extends over every single church and every single bishop and pastor. He may elect and depose bishops, call together councils, make and unmake laws, send out missionaries, confer privileges and dispensations, and reserve sins to his own tribunal. For the same reason, he may personally teach and guide any of the bishops or their flocks. He is the supreme judge of all the faithful. To him remains the final appeal." And that is uh, page 225. And again, we'll put a link to this on the Tradcast homepage so you can look it up for yourself. Notice that nowhere here do we read anything about This resistance position which Mr. Gajewski wants us to believe and which the Society of St. Pius X, the Remnant, the Fatima Crusader, all these people and organizations want us to believe. Nowhere do we hear anything about such a position. On the contrary, everything points to the exact opposite. So then, what about those quotes, those resistance quotes that Mr. Gajewski provides? What about those? Don't they prove the uh, recognize and resist position, and don't they refute our position, the Sedevacanta's position? Uh, that at least is what Mr. Gajewski thinks, and with him, a whole host of other people. But let's, uh, let's see what we have here. And the first quote we can look at is that provided by Cardinal de Torquemada, who died in 1468, so 15th century here. We already briefly referred to Cardinal Torquemada earlier, but let's look at the quote that Mr. Gajewski provides by Cardinal Torquemada. Quote, although it clearly follows from the circumstances that the Pope can err at times and command things which must not be done, that we are not to be simply obedient to him in all things, that does not show that he must not be obeyed by all when his commands are good. To know in what cases he is to be obeyed and in what not, it is said in the Acts of the Apostles, one ought to obey God rather than man. Therefore, were the Pope to command anything against Holy Scripture or the articles of faith or the truth of the sacraments or the commands of the natural or divine law, he ought not to be obeyed, but in such commands to be passed over. Okay, Uh, that's, that's fine. We don't have a problem with that. But obviously, Cardinal Torquemada is talking about commands. Commands. Like, for example, if the Pope were to say... I want to purchase a a big, wonderful new new tiara, right, The, the, the papal crown. And in order to do that, I'm going to raise money by having people steal from the rich. Okay, I just want them to go and break into houses and grab the money and bring it to me so I can purchase this tiara. That would be an evil command. And of course, we would be obliged to resist that, okay? That is something commanded, for example, against Holy Scripture, against the articles of faith, against the, the the commands of both the natural and the divine law, okay? This is the kind of thing Cardinal Torquemada is talking about. Um, but, you know what, let's just, for the sake of argument, let's just say, as Mr. Gajewski believes, that Cardinal Torquemada is here talking about The Pope exercising his magisterial office by teaching the faithful. And remember, he is the teacher of all the faithful, not only the bishops and the cardinals, but also of all the faithful. Let's just say that Cardinal Torquemada were indeed arguing what Mr. Gajewski believes he's saying. Well, in that case, We would simply have to say Cardinal Torquemada has been overruled. You know, there's been a little bit of teaching by the church since the 15th century on these matters, especially at the First Vatican Council. So, if in any point Cardinal Torquemada disagrees with subsequent church teaching, Cardinal Torquemada has to go. It's that simple. Now, we're not saying that that Cardinal Torquemada actually did that, but For the sake of argument, okay? Worst case scenario. Next, let's get to a teaching, uh, rather a quote by Pope Innocent III that Mr. Kaczewski provides next, okay? Quote, The Pope should not flatter himself about his power, nor should he rashly glory in his honor and high estate, because the less he is judged by man, the more he is judged by God. Still the less can the Roman Pontiff glory, because he can be judged by men, or rather can be shown to be already judged, if, for example, he should wither away into heresy, because he who does not believe is already judged. In such a case, it should be said of him, if salt should lose its savor, it is good for nothing, but to be cast out and trampled underfoot by men. So here we have Pope Innocent, The third, but again, he's really not saying anything that helps the recognize and resist position. Yes, it's true he talks about a pope withering away into heresy and not believing, but Pope Innocent is not saying that such a pope would actually remain pope. On the contrary, he implies that he would not because he says that he can then be judged by men or rather can be shown to be already judged. And and this, of course, is also the position of St. Robert Bellarmine, who is a doctor of the church, uh, in fact, the doctor on the papacy. And uh, so the point is that if it is possible for a pope to become a heretic, and that is actually, uh, I believe, disputed whether that is even possible, but if it is possible, well then, as soon as that becomes manifest, that the Pope is a heretic, he is by that very fact, and immediately no longer the Pope. And the quote from Pope Innocent III actually confirms just that. It does not in any way help... Mr. Gajewski or or the recognize and resist position here. Next, our critic brings up a Dominican theologian who died in the 16th century by the name of Father Sylvester Prieras. What should be done in cases where the Pope destroys the church by his evil actions? And what should be done if the Pope wishes unreasonably to abolish the laws of church or state? Father Prieras responds as follows quote, He would certainly be in sin, and it would be unlawful to allow him to act in such a fashion, and likewise to obey him in matters which are evil. On the contrary, there is a duty to oppose him while administering a courteous rebuke. Thus, were he to wish to distribute the church's wealth or Peter's patrimony among his relatives, were he to wish to destroy the church or to commit an act of similar magnitude, there would be a duty to prevent him and likewise an obligation to oppose him and resist him, the reason being that he does not possess power in order to destroy, and thus it follows that if he is so doing, it is lawful to oppose him. It is clear from the proceeding that if the Pope, by his commands, orders, or by his actions, is destroying the Church, he may be resisted and the fulfillment of his commands prevented. The right of open resistance to prelate's abuse of authority stems also from natural law." So, let's say, to make this short, let's say that what Father Sylvester Priera says here, proves or entirely supports the recognize and resist position, okay, to a T. Let's say he held exactly what the people in the Society St. Pius X and people like John Veneri and, and, and our critic himself, Mr. Gajewski, let's say that that is exactly the position that also this Dominican theologian held. Okay, well then, once again, all we can say is, why should that be sufficient proof of the position when church teaching, uh, including an ecumenical council, actually several, because this was even before Trent, have come down to us since and clarified a number of things, and his position is clearly no longer permitted, at least certain parts of it. Because, I mean, obviously we agree that it is necessary to uh, resist a pope who gives evil commands like we just discussed. Okay? So, it doesn't make any sense. Why should we be able to reject an ecumenical council like Vatican II, as, as Mr. Gajewski believes Vatican II to have been a valid ecumenical council of the Catholic Church, why should we be allowed to reject that, but then somehow be bound by what one Dominican priest in the 16th century said? Again, it makes no sense. So, and, and that's conceding only for the sake of argument that that was uh, indeed the uh, theologian's position, that, that, that he was indeed holding to the same recognize and resist type of position as our critics do. So, really, this isn't going anywhere either. Next, we come to Cardinal Cajetan, the celebrated scholar of the 16th century. He says, quote, It is imperative to resist a pope who is openly destroying the church, unquote. Okay, Uh, that is fine. It says nothing, however, about a pope exercising his uh, magisterium, which, uh, of course, is what our critic wants us to infer. But this isn't actually specific enough. And in any case, even if he were teaching the recognize and resist position, St. Robert Bellarmine actually refutes him regarding um, the idea that a pope could be a heretic and still remain pope. So, this doesn't help either. Then we have the canonist and theologian, Father Francisco de Victoria, another Dominican, and again from the 16th century. Are you noticing? Are you noticing this too? They're all from the 16th century, or they're all from eons ago. Well, there's a reason for that, like we already said. Anyway, Father Francisco de Victoria... Quote, according to natural law, violence may lawfully be opposed by violence. Now, through the acts permitted and the orders of the kind under discussion, the Pope does commit violence because he is acting contrary to what is lawful. It therefore follows that it is lawful to oppose him publicly, unquote. Um, still fairly vague, um, obviously, if he is using violence unjustly. He may certainly be repelled by violence. I'm not sure what the, what the context is. If uh, Father Francisco de Victoria is here talking about teachings in the magisterium, or if he is talking about changing certain church laws, well, guess what? He's since been overruled by Pope Leo XIII at the very latest, okay, and uh, by Vatican I. Okay, so, th- this isn't helpful. Okay, This is all pre-Vatican I stuff, and it's not even magisterial teaching. right? He's quoting individual theologians only that are giving their views, uh, their opinions on a number of things that were being discussed at the time that were not settled yet. So, Our critic isn't even quoting magisterial documents like uh, papal bulls, for example, right? Or encyclical letters. Uh, Encyclicals came into use uh, much later, uh, not until the 18th century. But still, he's not even giving papal teaching. He's simply finding quotes from individual theologians speaking on a matter that was being discussed among theologians at the time then there is another quote from Cajetan and then one from Father Francisco Suarez and you know it, we're, we're really repeating ourselves here it's always the same thing either the quote doesn't talk about the 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 actual scenario we're discussing here the 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 issue that we're discussing between recognize and resist supporters and set of acantists, or it it does address that and uh, has simply, you know, is simply the opinion of a particular theologian at a time when the matter was still under discussion, and this has been settled by the church since. So the quotes here are really not helpful, ultimately, to the recognize and resist position. Now let's get to Saint Cardinal Bellarmine here for a minute, which uh, is also quoted here from his book De Romano Pontifice* on the Roman Pontiff. The second book, chapter 29, quote, Just as it is lawful to resist the Pope that attacks the body, it is also lawful to resist the one who attacks souls or who disturbs civil order or, above all, who attempts to destroy the Church. I say... That it is lawful to resist him by not doing what he orders and preventing his will from being executed. Unquote. Now, this is a really old hat, this, this quote, and I have to say I was surprised to see that our critic is actually still circulating it. Over 10 years ago, Father Anthony Chikada wrote a short article. Regarding this quote, and it is entitled, The Bellarmine Resistance Quote, Another Traditionalist Myth. And yes, we do have the link for you on our Tradcast page for this episode, episode number three. Of course, I'm not going to go through the entire article. It's very short, actually. I just want to highlight the four points that Father Cicada spells out in particular. He says, Quote, anyone who actually consults the original sources and who understands a few fundamental distinctions in canon law comes up with a completely different set of conclusions about what the famous resistance passage really means. To wit, point number one, Bellarmine is talking about a morally evil pope who gives morally evil commands not one who, like the post-Vatican II popes, teaches doctrinal error or imposes evil laws. Number two, the context of the statement is a debate over the errors of Gallicanism, not the case of a heretical pope. Number three, Bellarmine is justifying resistance by kings and prelates, not by individual Catholics. And number four, Bellarmine teaches in the next chapter of his work, chapter number 30, that a heretical pope automatically loses his authority. In a word, the passage can neither be applied to the present crisis nor invoked against Sedevacantism, unquote. And Father Jakarta then provides some more elaborate commentary on each of these points. So, The Bellarmine resistance quote is definitely not going to fly either because it simply does not apply to the question at hand. St. Robert Bellarmine manifestly and very clearly taught the Sedevacantist position that a manifestly heretical pope loses his office immediately upon the fact without a declaration. And St. Robert Bellarmine is the saint, and he is a doctor of the church, okay, unlike all the others that were quoted here. Finally, a quote from the First Vatican Council, okay? Finally, something substantial. Gajewski writes, Quote, Council Vatican I, 1870, defined that a pope has no power or right to come out with new doctrines or to change the faith, which has been handed down from the apostles, but only to maintain and preach it. Then he quotes the Council. For the Holy Ghost was promised to the successors of Peter, not so that they might, by his revelation, make known some new doctrine, but that, by his assistance, they might religiously guard and faithfully expound the revelation or deposit of faith transmitted by the apostles, unquote. Yep, that's very true, and once again has nothing to do with the issue, because the issue is whether a pope can In fact, do such a thing, which we deny, and Mr. Gajewski affirms. It's just that he claims that each individual Catholic must then find out somehow oh, my goodness, the Pope is teaching error. Quick, I need to resist. Well, what are you going to resist with? Well, the prior teaching. Okay, well, what if the prior teaching was an error too? Oh, yeah, shucks. Yeah, folks, this position is just not going to work. Okay. And you can say, well, but the prior teaching was always taught. Really? Have, have you read all the documents from church history all the way back to the beginning? Is this what each individual Catholic has to do now, despite having a job, despite having a family? Do we all now have to know the faith better than the Pope and the Cardinals and the bishops of the church? It's absurd. It's absurd, and and consider, of course, also that throughout most of church history, most people could not read, nor did they have uh, documents available, of course, to study, and this whole resistance idea by each individual Catholic is absurd on many levels. That's the fact of the matter. So, it's very interesting that from the Recognize and Resist camp, we get a lot of selective quotations quotations from hundreds of years ago when matters were being discussed that are no longer up for discussion today and instead the the papal teaching the magisterial teaching that has come down to us since then is being ignored such teaching as pope leo the which is what uh, you know the the whole controversy now uh, that we're having with Mr Gajewski is about that's what he responded to Right and so against the, the the clear position of Pope Leo XIII, he's offering all these theologians from hundreds of years ago that even if we were to grant that they actually addressed the same point as Pope Leo XIII, then they would have simply been overruled by the Pope. One more time, the Apostolic Letter Epistolatua of Pope Leo XIII, eighteen eighty five. To the shepherds alone was given all power to teach, to judge, to direct. On the faithful was imposed the duty of following their teaching, of submitting with docility to their judgment, and of allowing themselves to be governed, corrected, and guided by them in the way of salvation. Thus it is an absolute necessity. Notice, an absolute necessity for the simple faithful to submit in mind and heart to their own pastors, and for the latter to submit with them to the head and supreme pastor. Sorry, folks. Recognize and resist just doesn't fit in here. Pope the XII, too, in his encyclical Humani Generis of 1950, wrote, quote, Nor must it be thought that what is expounded in encyclical letters does not of itself demand consent, since in writing such letters the popes do not exercise the supreme power of their teaching authority. For these matters are taught with the ordinary teaching authority, of which it is true to say, He who heareth you, heareth me. That's a quote from Luke ten sixteen. And generally, what is expounded and inculcated in encyclical letters, already for other reasons, appertains to Catholic doctrine. Unquote. the XII, 1950, Encyclical Humani Generis. Yeah, unfortunately, that was not one of the quotes we got from Mr. Gajewski, and I think I know why. Does he consent to the encyclicals of John Paul II, of Paul VI, of Benedict XVI, of Francis? Of course not. Of course he doesn't. Now, let's see if our critic would apply the following quote, which is from Pope St. Pius X, ...to any of the Vatican II Popes. Okay? Quote, When one loves the Pope, one does not stop to debate about what he advises or demands... ...to ask how far the rigorous duty of obedience extends and to mark the limit of this obligation... When one loves the Pope, one does not object that he has not spoken clearly enough, as if he were obliged to repeat into the ear of each individual his will, so often clearly expressed not only viva voce, but also by letters and other public documents. One does not call his orders into doubt on the pretext, easily advanced by whoever does not wish to obey, that they emanate not directly from him, but from his entourage. One does not limit the field in which he can and should exercise his will. One does not oppose to the authority of the Pope that of other persons, however learned, who differ in opinion from the Pope. Besides, however great their knowledge, their holiness is wanting, for there can be no holiness where there is disagreement with the Pope." That, ladies and gentlemen, is Pope St. Pius X. Yes, the Pope St. Pius X. From an address to the priests of the Apostolic Union, given on November 18th, 1912. And you can verify this for yourself. It was published in the Acts of the Apostolic See, the Acta Apostolice Sedis, of 1912, and it is found there on page six. 6- 95. And yes, we do link to that document as well. You can look it up for yourself. Now, let's go back to Monsignor Gerard van Noort uh, and his book Christ's Church. Okay, that's volume 2 of his dogmatic theology. We already quoted from it earlier, but there is actually a paragraph or two where he speaks about what would happen or what we should do if a pope were to basically abuse his authority and, and go nuts. Now, this is very interesting. Listen to this. This is from page 283. Quote Finally, from the doctrine outlined above, one should not leap to the absurd conclusion that all things are licit to the pope or that he may turn things topsy turvy in the church at mere whim. Possession of power is one thing a rightful use of power, quite another. The supreme pontiff has received his power for the sake of building up the church, not tearing it down. In exercising his supreme power, he is by divine law strictly bound by the laws of justice, equity, and prudence. These laws require that unless necessity or great utility urge the contrary, the pope should, for example, reject the legitimate customs obtaining in various places, observe prescribed ecclesiastical laws, etc. These laws, even though they do not possess a binding power for the Pope, do nonetheless normally have for him a directive power. They also demand that in normal circumstances, the Pope should leave the full running of dioceses to their individual bishops in accord with the advice given by St. Bernard to Pope Eugene III. And we can skip that quote. And here he here gets uh, extremely interesting. It is possible, of course, as in all affairs governed by men, for abuses to creep in and for aberrations to occur. But the divine bridegroom of the church, who has promised that the Holy Spirit will be with the church forever, will always see to it that the church herself is not exposed to catastrophe by the weakness or imprudence of individual men. One final point remains to be mentioned. The Roman pontiff is subject to no one on earth and consequently cannot be called to judgment by anyone. He is obliged to render an account for his decisions to no one but him alone, whose visible vicar he is, Jesus Christ. Unquote. That's pages 283 and 284. Van Noort's Dogmatic Theology, Volume 2, Christ's Church. So there we have it. The Pope, yes, it is true. He's not allowed, that is, to go ahead and do as he pleases. He is bound by divine law to justice, equity, and prudence so that he would sin if he were to offend against these. But when it comes to everything else, those things have a normative rather than a binding force for him. And at the end of the day, it is almighty God who will guarantee that things do not go wrong. But what Mr. Gajewski and the recognize and resist camp would have us believe is that everything has gone wrong and it is now our job to resist it and to reject what comes from the apparent Holy See. And that is simply, as I think we have seen in great detail now, not permitted according to Catholic teaching, because the Pope is the teacher of all Christians, he's the teacher of all the faithful, and it is the duty of the faithful to submit with docility to his judgment. And so in the case that we have today, the only conclusion that safeguards the Church from error and from having been defiled in her very constitution, in her very essence, in her very innermost being, is to say that the Vatican II Modernist Church is not the Catholic Church, cannot possibly be the Catholic Church. This alone can keep the Catholic Church undefiled and spotless and immaculate. Yes, there are other problems, no doubt about it, and there are plenty of unanswered questions, but there is no contradiction, and that is a most important point. The recognize and resist position is contradictory. It contradicts what the Catholic magisterium requires us to believe. Whereas the Sedevacantist position, at worst, has no clear answers to certain questions. So Sedevacantism may result in mystery, but it does not result in contradiction, which is exactly what happens with the position of the Society of St. Pius X and all these resisting traditionalists. They have contradiction. We have mystery. As Bishop Donald Sanborn once said, we, said of merely assert something that is possible. It is possible that Jorge Bergoglio is not, in fact, the Pope of the Catholic Church. Okay, and likewise, his five predecessors. It is possible that somebody who claims to be pope is not, in fact, pope. That is entirely possible. It's happened many times in the history of the church. But the people who recognize and resist assert things that are not possible. For example, they believe in a church who can give us false teachings, false worship, false mass, false sacraments, False discipline, universal discipline, I'm talking about canon law, for example. And false saints, they canonize people in the Vatican II Church that are not, and some of them cannot be saints, such as John Paul II. There's no way this man could possibly be a saint of the Catholic Church, even if, which we certainly hope, even if he repented on his deathbed and actually died a Catholic, it would be impossible for the church to canonize him. And, uh, of course, in the case of the Vatican II Church and John Paul II, uh, they actually canonized him specifically for being such a good example of the false modernist religion. Right? That's the quote-unquote evidence that they used for his canonization, for his bogus canonization. So, the recognize and resist people believe in a church that can give us false teachings, false worship, false sacraments, false discipline, false canon law, and false saints, okay? And in fact, even false marriage tribunals, that too, because the Society of St. Pius X certainly does not believe that marriage annulments by the Vatican, which they believe to be the Holy See, recognized by the Vatican, that such marriage annulments are necessarily valid declarations of nullity, and they've set up their own tribunals now in opposition to to those approved by the Vatican. I mean, the the whole thing is just bizarre. So they believe all these things about uh, a church giving us evil, basically an evil church, right? They believe all these things, but then they say that a false pope, no, that couldn't possibly be, right? We can have false teachings, false saints, false sacraments, all of these things are fine. They can happen. But a false pope, no, that's out of the question. Oh, really? But it is possible that somebody claims to be pope and isn't. And for that, we're going to link the video, Papal Imposters, Historical Precedents. We're going to link that from our Tradcast homepage for this episode as well. It's a great video. It's not very long. You'll, you'll learn a lot. So really, the, the only way to keep the Catholic Church from having defected is to insist that the authorities who have imposed these false teachings and these false sacraments and false saints and so forth, that these authorities are illegitimate. That they are illegitimate and invalid. That they are not, in fact, true authorities. That they are not, in fact, part of the Catholic Church. That is the necessary conclusion to all the evidence. cast. All of this will suffice To refute the case made by Mr. Gajewski, he unfortunately concludes from his uh, supposed evidence that uh, popes can defect from the faith and teach heresy in their decrees. That's what he says. That's an exact quote from his rebuttal. And uh, we challenge him. We challenge him to find us one approved pre-Vatican II dogmatic theology textbook after the First Vatican Council, that says such an absurd and outrageous thing. And we're very confident that he will not find one. Rebuking a pope who gives scandal by his immoral conduct is one thing. And that's fine, and that can even be necessary at times. And in fact, uh, St. Paul the Apostle did it to St. Peter. Right in uh, Galatians chapter 2. But this has nothing to do with resisting heresy in a papal decree. Okay, such a thing is actually an impossibility. Any pope who would do such a thing would immediately cease to be pope, and the decree would not, in fact, be valid. It would not actually have come from a true pope. So I suggest that anyone who still wants to defend the recognize and resist position do so by using evidence after Vatican I and before Vatican II, and we'll see how that goes. All right, good luck with that. Oh, there's one more thing we forgot to talk about, and that is Mr. Gajewski's argument regarding St. Athanasius. He claims that St. Athanasius... Acknowledged the the Arians to have authority in the Catholic Church. And he doesn't provide a quote or anything, and I'm certainly not going to go through tomes of, of church history to find something one way or another. So I'd say if he has some real hard evidence, he can quote it and we can take it from there. But we're actually going to provide. A blog post on our Novus Ordo Wire blog on the case of Pope Liberius. And really, we have St. Robert Bellarmine backing up our position, and not only St. Robert Bellarmine, of course, uh, regarding... Uh, manifest heretics and apostates immediately losing all jurisdiction, and certainly St. Robert Bellarmine would have known uh, and taken into consideration the case of St. Athanasius. So, really, that's not going to get our critic anywhere either. And of course, there is uh, the code of canon law, and uh, Pope Paul IV's cum ex apostolatus officio decree, which make it absolutely clear that somebody who does not profess the Catholic faith, cannot hold office in the Catholic Church. And honestly, it is also an extremely reasonable position. It's really hard to understand why so many people seem to have a problem with it and and seem to have an aversion for it. So we've covered a lot of ground here. We've spent a lot of time, well over an hour on this. We uh, certainly hope it's been extremely informative for you. Certainly, the teaching of Pope Leo Thirteenth stands. Mr. Gajewski has not been able to refute it or to reinterpret it and make it into somehow a support for his recognize and resist position, which basically holds that Pope Leo Thirteenth really meant to include and forgot a footnote that basically says... None of this applies to a pope who teaches heresy or error or promulgates harmful disciplinary laws or canonizes bogus saints or institutes invalid sacraments or replaces the mass with a modernist worship service and so forth. Sorry, but the position is simply absurd and It is certainly, no matter what was permitted back in the 16th century to be discussed among theologians, it is certainly not a viable Catholic position to hold today. No, the Catholic Church does not need a theological babysitter. She does not need the lay faithful to watch over the true doctrine. That is actually the whole point of the papacy, right? The papacy is is the ultimate guarantee of orthodoxy and the beacon of salvation. And the very same Pope Leo XIII, in fact, taught in his encyclical, Satis Conitum of 1896, quote, Union with the Roman See of Peter is always the public criterion of a Catholic. Unquote. Of course, you can't adhere to Francis' teachings and then also. To the teachings from before Vatican II without holding contradictory beliefs. And that is the conundrum that only the set of a contest position can answer successfully and soundly with Catholic principles. And that is it for today. Hope you found this broadcast enjoyable. If you did, please tell your friends and family about it. We shall return, God willing, with episode number four, hopefully sooner rather than later. Why don't you say a prayer? Thank you very much, and may God bless you.